Stanford University. And the Stanford Graduate School of Business. What I'd like to say is, I, I, I've done a, a few of these before. I like them to be very interactive. What I would say, ask any question you want. I never like to have any question off bounds. I know I'm being in, uh, taped. So I, some, some questions I may be able to answer a bit more uh, frankly than others. I will do my best to be as frank as possible. Uh, sometimes maybe if it was just a private, I could be very frank. But I, I encourage you to ask any question you'd like. Uh, you won't offend me. Um, that's, we're, we're here to have a discussion. So whatever on your mind, uh, please feel free to ask me. Uh, what I'd like to do is go through just, I have some, a few slides that I'd like to take maybe five minutes and walk through just to give you, uh, if you aren't familiar, maybe give you an idea of who we are, what we do, what are some of the issues we face. And then I have a last slide on a couple of issues, matters that I thought would be of interest. If our questioning takes us in other directions, that's great, because this, this is not about me, it's about you. Um, and uh, so the things that I have are, are some of the issues that we're facing as an industry and also uh, some of the experiences that I've had around managing, managing people and managing a career and some things that I think are useful for you to know as you begin that trek. And so quickly I'd just like to walk through a few slides that go through where we operate. So it gives you an, op, uh, an idea of where we're located, where we might have operations, where we're building projects around the world. Um, and so we're very diverse. Uh, I should say we're very diverse geographically. We're not as diverse if you look at our people in our organization. We're very, we look a lot like me, if I can say it that way. <laughs> and we're trying to change that. Um, and, uh, but you can see we're probably a little under, underrepresented in Africa, which has been an, been an, uh, an issue that we're trying to, to correct as we go forward. We have a couple of very large projects that we're looking at in Africa, but also in South America also. But, we, but the key about, one of the keys about our business is, and as we talk maybe at, at the end about some of the issues we're facing, we can't choose where we go to operate. We have to go where the resources are. And uh, a lot of the easy resources have been found. And a lot of those that are in uh, more stable countries uh, are already in operation. And some of the more prospective areas are places like um, Africa, where governments are not as stable, operating environments and, and physical regimes are not quite the same, and ha uh, legal institutions are not as strong. And so those are some of the issues that we're facing as an organization. If you look at what we do, this just kind of gives you an idea of the various areas we, we're at and where we are in those markets size-wise. Uh, I'll have another slide shortly that will show profits that will give you an idea of where our profitability is spread across those markets. Um, some of you might see, have seen that many companies will say, well, we have to be number one or two in a market or we don't want to be in it. The way we look at it is we search for the best opportunities. We do put, put opportunities or commodities through a review. There are certain commodities that we prefer not to be in because we don't see the industry dynamics as being that favorable. I'll say zinc may be one of those where it's, it's more plentiful. You don't find large resources. We, 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 our mantra and our strategy is very large, low cost, long life. So we're looking at things that will last for a minimum of 20 years, hopefully 
50, 60, 70, 80 years, which is a very long time for a mine, and that will produce, when you look at its production rates compared to other mines, are very large mines. We have, in copper, we have interests in some of the, you know, the top, if you look across, I think we're, we have interests in three of the top 10 <coughs> mines in the world. The one thing I was gonna say, I'm just gonna go back, as we come back, there's also a reason I put this picture on this slide, and I'll come back to it hopefully a little bit later. But I just want you to remember that, and I'll plant a seed. Um, one of the things at Rio Tinto that we're very proud of, and, and I truly believe it, is that we work very hard on being environmentally responsive, sustainable development, which I include environment, health and safety, both of communities, but also our workers, but also how we deal with governments and communities. But when you look at that picture, we will never be seen as a green company, will we? No matter what we do. We can be the best in our industry, but we will never be seen as somebody that's a standout because we have an impact. There's, there, you know, and, and in some areas, this is not a mine that we will clean up and will be gone once we're done. But some, area, some types of mining that we do, once we're done, you wouldn't know we've been there. But this won't be one of them. If you look at um, where we sell and what we sell, um, as of late, by destination, we do sell around the world. But you can see how Asia is, is really beginning to dominate our industry. If you looked at China five years ago, six, six years ago, instead of being 25% of our, our revenue, it would have been a less than 10%. So that gives you an idea of how it's been growing. If you look at what we sell, um, you know, pretty diverse, but we have been a bit more weighted towards iron ore and aluminum. Iron ore to, to partly because its price has been so high, so it's kind of skewing that a little bit. I, I put this up just, just to give you, uh, you can see where we make money, but certain commodities are come in and out of favor, if I can say it that way, from a pricing perspective. So these things go up and down over time. But, but what I would point out is if you look at 2008, that was a record year for us. And look at the first half of 2010, which is that last bar there. We made almost in the first half of this year, as we almost made as much as we made in 2009. And pricing for most of our commodities have gotten better in the second half than they were in the first half. I mean, if, uh, if you just look at consensus for what we'll do, well, this will be a record year for us. And we're still in a very uncertain economy particularly in the US. As I travel around the world, different economies, you get different feels for how people feel what's going on and what the future is like. In the US, it's still very uncertain. People are unwilling to really kind of start investing. We're investing, we haven't announced it to the market yet, so I can't get into a lot of detail yet. But, but what I would say is come February, look and see what we start. Well, I think we're going to start saying, uh, talking about it in November. Our investment pipeline for the next five years is more than we've ever spent before. Very high levels of, of investment. And I'll talk about maybe a couple of those. Well, it didn't start till the end of the year, though. So it didn't really hit till about October. We were going gangbusters and literally our, our iron ore group, um, 
uh, was just flat out doing everything it could to produce more iron ore. And I'm not kidding you, over a weekend in October, the ships disappeared at the ports in Australia. They just left. Orders dr just dried up. Things just fell apart. So there were wobbles, but for, for it really didn't hit till the end of 08. And then, but, but when you look, we're, this is going to be a record year. We're, demand on what we need to do from a, to build new supply is just enormous for us. We cannot invest. We, we actually are having trouble getting our, our people and businesses to spend capital fast enough. And when I tell people that, that are in other businesses, they just kind of look at me like, well, we won't approve capital, let alone we can't get them to, to move fast enough coming out of the global financial crisis, where we had to take some very significant steps because while we had a record year that year, we were also under very heavy, heavy debt after buying, making the Alcan acquisition, if you're familiar with our company, maybe, we, um, which was an all-cash deal. The markets fell apart. We, had, in hindsight, had bought something that was a very big acquisition, acquisition near to the top of the market, and we couldn't term out that debt and some of those things as a result of the, we were, we, our, our main competitor was coming after us, trying to buy us, and so we were kind of stuck in a position. And then suddenly the markets fell apart and we had a huge amount of debt. I would say that um, in June of last year, so almost 18 months ago, we had $40 billion of debt. At the end of this year, and if you look at what the analysts are saying, we'll have about somewhere around $5 billion in debt, and they're about right. So it just gives you an idea of how the world for us has changed in, in 18 months. Just quickly, I mean, if you look at what's happening in the world, and we've been caught off to some degree in different areas as surprised as everybody else, as the Asian economies are taking off, they're going through that, that period of growth that is very material intensive that you saw Japan go through, say, in the 50s and the 60s. The U.S. and European economies went, went through that much, much before then. But um, just, just to give you an idea, uh, uh, let's say copper. Over the next 20 years, we expect more copper to be used in the world than has been used in the last 70 years. And when we look at what we, we have to be producing twice as much copper in 20 years as we are today. And if you, we produce as a, as a world about, in round terms I'll use, about 15 million tons of copper a year. So we're going to have to produce somewhere around 30 million tons of copper in 20 years. We're, we're developing one of the largest mines in Mongolia right now that will produce a little less than a half a million tons of copper. So to meet the demand going forward in 20 years, we're going to have to produce um, 30 of those operations over the next 20 years about. And it's costing us about $5 billion to, to develop that one operation. That just gives you a, a little bit of a view on the scale that our industry is facing as we move forward. And, and just quickly, 
the only reason I really put this up is, is as you see what's happening in China as well as India is starting to, to, to follow. It's, it's a little bit slower. It's not as command and control as China is, so it's not happening quite as quickly and smoothly. When I say smoothly, it's such a, a consistent, rapid pace year on year. It's, but, but I think in India, as I visit there more and more, my view is the genie's out of the bottle. The people, the, the up-and-coming generation in India wants, and, and this is happening around the world, they want everything that you have. And that genie's out of the bottle and it's coming. So, you know, happy for questions. That was just a, a brief introduction that I wanted to give, a little bit about our company, what's happening. I think you may have done some reading. There have been some case studies that have been done. Uh, there are things around some of the issues that we face as a company. I think somebody mentioned to me that I might get some questions on um, the bribery issues that we faced in China and our four people that were arrested and subsequently found guilty and sentenced to jail there, our Alcan acquisition and some of the dynamics around that uh, and what it, how it kind of put the company in a difficult position. I'm happy to answer or discuss any of those. Like I said, nothing off, off limits. Yes? So not any of those, actually. Um, when you say you're looking at um, moving more into Africa and uh, South America, um, there are already like, mining companies in there, despite the riskiness and the instability. Like I know Guinea has a very large bauxite deposit. And yeah. There's definitely a Canadian company in there, even though they had a coup like, last year. Um, so are you just adjusting your company's risk profile? Are you just willing to take on more risk now? Um, yeah, we, we're, we're realizing that we, we have been somewhat, in some instances, conservative when it comes around moving into more risky locations. So we had an opportunity and we actually had an interest in Colombia in a, in a coal operation which has turned out to be a very successful operation over time. We sold out of that in the mid-90s mainly due to risks around operating in Colombia. And looking back we can say we did that way too early. If you go back 30 years ago now, now Two of the biggest operations and most profitable operations that really drove our company were in Africa. <coughs> it was a copper, copper operation in, in South Africa and a uranium operation in uh, Namibia. And uh, so we've, we've worked in less secure places or you know, less developed places, but sometimes we've been a little reluctant to be as aggressive as I think we should be in those areas. And we're realizing we do need to change that. Guinea, we have a, a massive iron ore, or iron ore uh, opportunity there. And we're having one of the issues that we're facing is that, that first group of mining <laughs> issues is the, the view that Guinea sees around the strategic nature of that resource because it is so big and governments wanting a bigger piece of the pie. That's probably about a 12, 10 to $12 billion development, massive impact on the country. And so you, you see the struggles that we're facing in trying to develop it, but what the government wants as well. Um, we also have to go where, where the resources are, as I said earlier. So wherever we happen to find resources, and Africa is one of the untapped potentials for very large resources, including if you want to be in copper over time, one of the biggest is the copper belt in, in Africa, which includes Zambia and the DRC. And so we're going to have to be there 
over time if we're going to be in these commodities. And so we're going to have to adapt. One of the things is be much better about government relations than we are today. Each of the major world commodities have relative um, strong supply constraints, so there isn't just enough of it. And yeah, I, I think uh, copper is one that has probably the best set of, of fundamentals because uh, it's growing so quickly. It's 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 plentiful, but not plentiful in high um, concentrations. You can find it at, at what grades that we would say about 0 0.5, 0 0.4, which are very hard to mine profitably. A one percent copper mine used to be a low-grade copper mine. Nowadays, it's, if you find a 1% copper mine, that, that is a superb find. They're also getting deeper. So if you look at underground mining for copper, today it's um, about 25% of copper is produced from underground. Uh, we figure by about 2020, it will be about double that amount. So it's getting deeper, and the deeper, harder to find, more complex to develop much more expensive. There's the really big block caving copper oper uh, opportunities probably right today can only be developed by three, maybe four companies. Um, that will evolve over time, but right now. Um, met coal, so used in iron ore, um, used in steel making. Uh, not as plentiful, and where it is being found now is in more difficult locations like Mozambique to, to develop. Uh, I think it has very strong fundamentals. Um, iron ore, mainly because uh, usually it's, it's such a logistics challenge to get. When you, when you mine iron ore, it's not about mining, it's all about logistics. We were talking about that. A, our iron ore mines in Australia, which are some of the biggest in the world, uh, we own about 1,500 kilometers of a private rail system that we run ourselves. We run it through an automated operation center that's based in Perth, which is about probably 1,500, 2,000 kilometers away from where the mines are. It's a, co a combination of about 20 mines, and they have to mine it and train it all to the same locations and blend it into a common, com a common final product that then is loaded onto ships. And so when you think about taking 20 different operations and some are up and some are down and some have problems, maybe equipment breaks or whatever, and managing that logistics chain to make sure that you're blending to a certain spec of a final product is you know, something you have helped us with is, is quite an, uh, uh, an undertaking. I, I, I'm sorry, I think there was a... Fundamentals, you mean the prices are, are going to be good? Go yes. Like for the suppliers, good yes. fundamentals, mm -hmm. bad news for the consumers. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> good for us. So, um, what's the competitive environment like competing in China um, with Chinese firms? And do you think that the you know, arrest and imprisonment of your employees was in any way related to that? It's um, it's very it's very difficult. We we don't believe we can operate in China, at least as the majority owner. Um, so we are looking to partner with Chinese. They very much see it as a strategic resource. As you've seen this with the, the debate that China's recently got, gotten into over some of the, the sea issues, or to, and, and they've been using rare earths, as, as it appears, at least let's say, as kind of a, a, a part of a tool against Japan in this uh, debate. 
uh, China wants to own its resources, and, and that's one of the issues. When you, when you look at what China faces, uh, they realize what they have to, they don't have the ability to meet their own internal <coughs> needs through their own commodities in country. So you will see them going out more and more and trying to buy commodities, run com uh, operations in, in other countries. And they've been doing that very aggressively in Africa and South America. Uh, su successful sometimes, not so successful in other ways. Sometimes they haven't been, uh, haven't worked really well with in dealing with community and community issues. We think we, can we think we need to partner with Chinese, and that's why we've been working with Chinalco, because they will be doing that. And they have cheap financing, which could be a, a big boom to us, but also we have technology and capabilities that they would like to have. We have reputation around the way we operate and our excellence that, that could be beneficial, that gets us access to certain commodities or deposits, I should say, that they might not be able to get. So we think that that can be a win-win. We think we, we, we've just, we've been working on negotiating an exploration agreement within China to try and work with them to identify deposits in China, but we also recognize we're not going to be the majority owner. We may be able to operate because for a period, they will want to gain their own operational expertise over time and replace us. We do recognize that. Um, the, the arrests, hard to say, I would, but I think the evidence would say they were probably somewhat connected, yes. Um, and, uh, uh, but looking back and having done our own investigation, we now know that this was something that was going on for some period of time as well. Our people were taking bribes. Um, it was completely outside of our systems. It was cash and garages and things like that, but they were doing it, and they were guilty of what they were, um, what they were found guilty of doing as well. And that, that hurt us. It hurt us with other governments around the world, but it hurt us in China. And um, after we bought Alcan and got ourselves into a very debt-heavy position and weren't able to do things like share issuances or terming out that debt and some of the things we might have been able to do before the global financial crisis hit. As I said, our competitor came after us in a bid and so we kind of had our, our hands tied as to what some of the things we could do externally. We couldn't issue stock to help pay down some of the debt, which may have been an option we were considering because we couldn't issue stock and put a price on our stock that then they could say we're will buy you at that price. So we found ourselves in a very difficult position. After the whole world fell apart then, and we were still heavy with that debt, we, there weren't a lot of options for us to try and bolster the finances of the company. And we entered into an agreement, I don't know how many of you are familiar, we entered into an agreement with Chinalco to make a significant investment of almost $20 billion into our company. And uh, at the time, there weren't many other options. The world, the financial markets were closed. We couldn't borrow money. We couldn't issue stock. Our stock price went down 80%. You probably didn't want to issue stock. Yeah, it was a scary time. My whole, my whole net worth is tied to the Rio Tinto share price. It was a very, it was a very scary time for a lot of people. Within six months, things started really changing. We could 
we could do other things and it was apparent that the deal that we had negotiated at that time which was the best we could do was no longer the best deal we could do and so we changed direction and that didn't go over very well in China and it was right and iron ore pricing was going through the roof we were looking at ways of changing the way iron ore was priced from long-term contracts that where the pricing was set annually to more of a quarterly or a spot market price they didn't like that then there was an arrest of our people for something that they, they had been doing for some time though I mean these things all damaged us quite significantly to be honest with you in China we have been working on that relationship very hard and we've been using some very renowned experts to help us as well and we have made quite a bit of progress but we still have work to do but I would say we're very happy with the progress we've made today there's one up here no, it's the inability of supply to keep up with demand. Um, so, ch China, and uh, in round figures, I should have ex slightly more precise, but in round numbers, they'll be, I think, importing around 600 million tons of iron ore this year. Um, if you go back to when I was the CFO in the iron, iron ore group, it was 100 million. And if you would have told somebody that someday, not even 10 years from now, but someday they might be importing 500 million tons of iron ore, they would have just laughed you out of the room. Absolutely laughed you out of the room. Uh, and they're doing it 10 years later. And so there's been an, a, a massive underinvestment in supply, and there's a catch up. But it's still finding resources, finding big resources. There's infrastructure issues. There's all the issues around negotiating with governments for fiscal stability. Um, uh, I'll, I'll just use an example. I'll, I'll go from iron ore to copper because I was intimately involved in our, our entry into the Mongolian copper asset. Um, but it took us about two years, maybe two and a half, to, do, to negotiate an investment agreement that would allow us to feel comfortable investing five billion dollars in that com country. But to put, put that in per perspective, if that mine was up and running today, that single operation would represent 25% of the GDP of the country. So it, it, you can understand why they were nervous. They were nervous that a Western country was, company was going to take advantage of them, that they were going to negotiate a bad deal that in hindsight, three or four years later, if prices were much better or other things that didn't look so good. And um, so, and we were nervous of that as well. We, this is an operation that will last for 60, probably more, but at least 60 years. We don't want to make an investment and start operating something and find that four or five years later, because of issues that we have, we lose it due to expropriations. So it's all these issues that, uh, that governments are struggling with as well, that we struggle with, and there's a permitting process. You can imagine, as I showed in the picture in the first, pe people are going to fight us on permitting. They don't necessarily want that in their being done. But they want their air conditioning, they want their refrigerators, they want their cars, they want their houses, they want their apartments, they want their iPads, their iPods. <laughs> and, you know, if you can't grow it, it usually comes from mining. And so, it, whether we like that or not, it's the truth. So we've got to do one or the other, 
and maybe you know over time the 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 world will become where we grow more things than than digging them out of the earth but that that is that is going to take a very long time to change that's not those are not the things that happen overnight in what area of equipment and labor so goods and services that you buy do you see the biggest shortages and how do you see those evolving maybe different countries people and and that does vary from place to place so in australia where uh, you, you see a lot of gas, not only commodities, well, gas is a commodity, but you see the energy, but when I talk about commodities, I mean copper, coal, iron ore, those sorts of things. There, you cannot get enough engineers um, uh, to, and just people to do construction and run operations is going to be a big deal. In other places, like Africa or Mongolia, we have people but they're not, and, and I don't mean this rudely, so don't, they're not educated and trained to do the work we're asking them to do. We just built a massive operation, very, very similar to what I said about Mongolia in Madagascar. And um, a couple of, you know, a, a billion dollars in round terms, uh, port, massive mining operation for TiO2. The people that we had to, that we hired and trained to work there, to build it, to now operate it, um, don't even wear shoes. And yet they can't come work on our operations without hard-toed hard you know, boots and safety gear. And it, it, you know, the, the training, welders, tech, uh, mechanics, uh, we, can, we train those people to do that, but it, you know, that takes time to do. Um, and so that, that's another issue that we face in, in developing worlds, in developing countries, sorry, um, that, that is a major issue. In the supply chain, um, it, it, it varies, but things like, just like we cannot bring on enough supply of copper, iron, ore, are further down our supply chain, people that make trucks, um, shovels, tires, uh, explosives, those are all things that I think over time there will be bottlenecks and they'll expand at different paces and some of those bottlenecks might disappear for a while and they'll open up someplace else. But those kinds of things, shipping could be one as well. It isn't right now, but uh, with all that trade that's going on on the water, you, you can have times where you have a lack of global shipping capacity. Find, um, that recently, the, as of BHP has obviously had three unsuccessful acquisition attempts and is under a little bit of pressure in the press and I think from perhaps some shareholders. Uh, do you find that there's a, an inordinate pressure on firms like yourself and uh, BHP and Extrata to continue to grow, grow, grow and, and to, to, buy, uh, to, buy, you know, to buy different companies rather than just grow organically? Yeah, there is quite a bit of pressure on us and, and it's kind of funny, we do get different pressures from different shareholders and I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. But there is a pressure on us to grow, uh, partly due to our customers because they don't want to have the high prices that as high as they're encountering. Uh, copper recently, it's fallen back over the last few days, but went over $4 a pound, which, you know, it's just iron ore prices, as, as you said, are very high. Uh, customers don't like paying that. And so there's pressure there, um, the pressure from our shareholders to grow into these very profitable pricing regimes that we face right now. Um, some shareholders that are more 
that are not necessarily company pickers, but ha are so big that they have to invest across the commodity space, sometimes we get pressure for them to not invest too quickly because that creates oversupply and drives prices down and brings, you know, will bring profits and valuations down for the, for the whole industry. So we get that, which is kind of an anomaly as well. Um, but it's getting harder to find really true tier one assets, and they take a long time to develop. And that's one of the issues that we're trying to get our, our hands around. Uh, we found a, you know, what we would refer to as a tier one diamond deposit in, in Canada, and it's been in operation for quite some time, but from find to first diamond was a decade. And, that's, and, it's, and it's getting worse. Uh, fine to first copper uh, is now taking in places maybe 15 years. And so it, it is becoming very hard uh, to find and develop and get in an operation. Now, for us, we usually like to develop a massive operation. And that's one of the issues we've been facing in, in Guinea is we, they, they, they see us taking too much time studying and figuring out how to build it, get the logistics in place to build a, a $12 billion operation. They want jobs today. They don't want jobs in a decade. Well, you can imagine politicians. They, they don't care about jobs in a decade. They want jobs today. And so how can we go in and develop a one or two million ton operation that costs six or seven hundred million dollars that gets things flowing today while we finish the studies and then build something bigger? That, that isn't in our DNA but it needs to be, and so we're looking at how we have to change that. Buying companies, uh, our shareholders, our, our investors, when I say shareholders, not just the mom and pop in the street, but kind of the, the, the city, the people from the city, are very worried that we'll pay too much, and that's a big concern. So there's that constant friction. Yeah, I'm sorry if I'm not going in order, but... Uh. So, and forgive my, my ignorance because I, I have not studied this industry a lot, but it, whenever I think about mining, I find it to actually be quite challenging because it seems like a lot of the variables that you need to deal with are um, independent of, of what your company can actually deal with. And it sounds like there are a number of things that you have to be very, very good at um, just from your talk, uh, strategic forecasting, but not five or 10 years, sounds like 50 years down the road, um, probably implementation. I'm wondering, uh, when you think about those, uh, the actions that are within the control of Rio Tinto, what are the areas that you think uh, Rio Tinto has a competitive advantage over your competitors? Like, where are the areas that you really can make a difference, and that's where you're driving value above what your competitor could drive? Um, so we, we think we think in, uh, around the way in which we operate. So that's both from excellence in that we are efficient and we run a very good operation that is a safe operation. And you see when, when there are issues, you saw the recent issue in, in Chile where the miners were trapped underground. Um, uh, safety is a big issue for our industry. I would say that our, in, if, I don't have a, 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 a slide today, but if I was to put up a slide of how our industry does against other industries and then how we do within our industry, you would find that you'd be surprised to find that the safety in our industry is much better than a lot of industries that you would, you would expect and that the, the way we perform within our industry is one of the best. But it is something that we work on and work on and work on. We, we take it very seriously. I, I am very 
comfortable in saying this is a true value. Doesn't mean we're perfect, doesn't mean we get it all right, doesn't mean that people don't get hurt. Uh, this year we've had two fatalities within, within Rio Tinto. You know, our goal is obviously no fatalities ever, um, but it's something that we work very hard with. We work very hard on managing the impact on the environment. Um, as I said in the first picture, we have an environmental impact, but managing that the best we can. I think we have a competitive advantage in doing that. We're working on biodiversity. We now have a, a stated goal of neutral impact on, on the, on, in biodiversity so that when we go in and we have to develop an operation, we're very careful about figuring out and understanding the makeup of what animals are there, what plant life and whatnot, and that, that we make make up for the, thing, the impact that we have. Working with communities and governments. Um, uh, and I, I've seen that in Mongolia. So when we went into Mongolia and, and it's not a resource we found, somebody else found and we had to be buy into it and then we had to help negotiate the investment agreement. The government of Mongolia would only sign that agreement with two companies and we were one of those two companies. The other one was, BH they would have with BHP, they would have. But, um, you know, so as we went through that, that was a, it was so, became so clear to me that was a competitive advantage for us. Um, we're, we're now working very hard at making technology and innovation a, techno a competitive advantage. And we have a few instances where we've done very well, where we, we, we run our train system in Australia remotely driverless trains, we're working on driverless trucks, we're working on automated tunneling um, for underground mines, we're working on um, sorting systems, sorting systems that are used in the food industry, but if we could bring them into our industry, we could open up re resources that are now uneconomic and make them economic. We're spending a lot of money on innovation, and, and I'll be honest with you, mining companies have not been ahead of the innovation curve. I think, I think you. What are the main challenges that you face in like uh, your supply chain? So how do you move all the commodities like between the continents and countries? What are the main mm -hmm. problems? It, it varies by commodity. So you can imagine in a diamonds mine, very, not much uh, with logistics. You can, you, we basically carry it out in a suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> we try to make sure other people don't do that, that we do that. <laughs> I actually went, I was in charge of our diamond operations. I went into our, and they laid out on a table that was about twice as wide, but about 200,000 carats of diamonds. You know I mean? Gold, not much in the logistics. But when you think about bauxite, which goes into, is the first portion of making aluminum, takes a lot of bauxite to make aluminum. Uh, it's a logistics shipping. It's, so it's mainly around rail uh, and shipping are, are the biggest logistic challenge, challenges that we face. And when we find deposits, quite often they're not near ports or they're not near rail infrastructure. And it used to be, uh, uh, when I was in iron ore, it used to cost a million dollars a kilometer to build a rail line. I'm assuming now it's probably at least two to two and a half million dollars a kilometer. So if you're a thousand miles, a thousand kilometers away from a port, it's very expensive to build a rail line. And so you have to build an operation that is so 
big enough to support that major investment. You can't just build a, a small mine. And usually then, if you, sometimes we have to build our own ports, which are very expensive as well. Coming back to the China question, one of the reasons we're, we're work, trying to work with China is because they can build infrastructure like that, including rail and port, much cheaper than we can. So we're trying to access that, that capability. Come over here. Yeah. I, I was just curious about uh, how you think the joint ventures uh, projects are going to impact the competitive environment in the future. Um, we, we have a lot of joint ventures, um, and we enter them for different reasons. Um, I, I think they will continue to be uh, a major aspect of our business. Uh, we would much rather, in most instances, own and operate 100% of our, of our project. Uh, I think what you'll find now is that going forward, governments will want a piece of that pie. So there will be more joint ventures that will include a piece with the government. In our, in our project in Madagascar, they got 20%. In Mongolia, they got a third. They wanted half. They actually wanted 51%, but a third. Uh, so you're seeing that they see these as strategic resources. They want to be involved. We may do it to we may do it because we need to access uh, somebody else's capabilities, like Chinese <coughs> strengths in building infrastructure, and so they need, may need to have a cut of the pie as well. And part of it is these projects are becoming so big as a financial di diversification as well. Um, a big project used to be $500 million, was an enormous project in the mining space a decade ago. Uh, we're, de we're looking at developing a, a, a really quite a tier, what we refer to as a first class tier one asset in Arizona for a copper project. We'll spend a billion dollars on it before we decide if we're even going to build it. And so when you look at the kinds of investments that we have to make as a company, I mean, they're just enormous investments. Um, and so joint ventures kind of play in that as well. But they introduce their own, their own problems as well. I think, here? Yeah, um, I was wondering if commodities trading, both in terms of proprietary trading and also risk management, is a competitive advantage for you? Yeah, it's, it's something, I'll be honest with you, that we struggle with. Um, we have knowledge of markets that other people, that, that should be better than other people that we should be able to use as, to our advantage in trading. And we can also manage some of the risks that we have around our operations through trading. We do, we do use trading for that. And I think we do that fairly well. But we've always struggled with, with being more like a Glencore, if you're familiar with Glencore, real trader. Um, because, first of all, we'd be competing against banks, financial institutions. And we're not sure we're best suited to compete against them. Firstly, because our compensation systems are so different. And so can we hire the best and brightest to do that? And so will we truly have a competitive advantage against those, those companies and groups? We kind of keep coming down that we probably don't. Now, Glencore actually does do operations and trading. They do both. And I've, I know the CEO of Glencore very well. And he talks that they, they, they have two completely different compensation and systems of managing people, and they don't seem to clash. Uh, I'm not sure in our company if having a group of 500 people 
maybe that 20% of them all make more than the CEO of the company. That causes problems. Those are the issues that we, the, that we struggle with. Our, our core strengths are mining and the, 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 whether it's the operational excellence, the environmental the sustainable development, dealing with governments, running operations. And, and we've tended to say those are our strengths, those are our core strengths, we'll stay with those. It, you know, it, it, the reason I bring this up is that um, a company like yours has, besides the natural resource footprint that's huge, it's also a data footprint that's exactly. huge. And, and it's, it, it's sort of the other untapped mine, as it were. And, and we continue to test that, and I won't say that five years from now we won't come to a different decision we're at today. But th those are kind of the, the arguments that we go back and forth in making those decisions internally. I think. Uh, in countries like Mongolia, where your projects are a significant chunk of the GDP, how do you manage price, uh, price inflation rates as your projects come online? Um, it, it's a very good question. So the Dutch disease issue. Um, what we did when we went, as we were working with the government, we helped them go to places like Chile, Alaska, uh, Canada which I think has managed, they're a resource country, but they, they suffer from it as well. I mean, you see their, what's happened to their currency. When I lived in Australia, the, the Aussie dollar was worth 50 cents to the US dollar. It's a parity today. So it, they, they do get impacted by uh, commodity pricing and swings. There's no doubt about it. But what, what we tried to do is take them to places that have managed it well. Uh, so that they could learn up front because they will suddenly get an influx of money and let's be, I was going to say being politicians, I don't care if you're a Mongolian politician or a U.S. politician, it doesn't really matter. Your instinct is to going to use it to get reelected next time because they have very short-term horizons. And so we've, we've tried to work with them to set up schemes like Alaska has, or Chile has actually done a very good job, where they base their government spend, spending on what they consider a long-term price of copper. And when copper's above that, they put it all into their you know, rainy day fund. And when it's below it, they, they're not afraid to draw from it so that they, they help manage that. But it's still going to have an impact. And, and you just try and help work best that you can, that they can set up mechanisms and institutions that help manage it. Just as a follow-up, does the profitability of your projects in countries like that depend on the government's sort of the rate of success of managing their currency, or do you try to hedge that out? No, um, we, we, we don't do hedging uh, other than in, in very specific circumstances. If we have a very large capital spend over a short period of time, and when I say short, over a year or two or three, we may hedge that large capital spend so that we don't get significant spikes. But over long periods, we don't hedge our operations, either from a commodity or a currency. Our customer, our, our shareholders buy into our company for commodity exposure to commodity prices. So we let them take that. And from a currency perspective, our view is, and, and, it, and it, it, it largely plays out, is that currencies are counter commodity price. And so as prices come down, currencies become less valuable and our costs go down in U.S. dollars. And so it's kind of an offset to lower commodity prices. Our costs go down. And when prices are higher, our costs go up. But margin-wise, we, we make a lot more money. I think right here. I want to ask a personal question yeah. about your like, personal 
grows in this such a big companies. Uh, how is that passed, and what do you find are the biggest challenge working in such a big company? Yeah. Um, it's an interesting question. I did want to talk about careers for a minute. We're, we're kind of running out of time. I guess I would say from that perspective is as you enter the workforce, have an idea which may evolve over time of what you would like to do and where you want to go. And without being pushy and without being, um, you know, the moment you get a new job, don't start talking to your boss about what the next job is. Do your job, do a good job, but don't let it go forever. I, I believe it is very important, and I, I as, an, as a leader, I think it's very important for me, my most important job is managing people. Uh, I will say something that is true, but probably not very popular. I don't do any work. <laughs> and people over in the organization probably love to hear me say that. I do work through people. That's the only way I get at, at, at where, you know, when you get to a certain point, and it's usually around in the U.S. system, what I would refer to as around that vice president level in an organization. Everything you do is through people. So managing people is very important. So both sides of that. First, the employee. I have been not aggressive, but I regularly, ha through my career, had conversations with my boss about how am I doing, what are my, expect what are my expectations, and do, do they meet your expectations? I think I can do X, Y, I was going to say Z, I'll say Z. Um, do you think I can do that? And if not, what do I need to do to fill the gaps? Can I work on projects? Can I do this? And, and as long as the word I use is alignment, if, if, if there's alignment in between you and the organization, that's great. You're working in the right path. If there's not, then you have to figure out how you're going to fill those gaps. And, and if your view of what you can do and the organization's view is different and you can't bridge that gap, then you're going to have to decide, am I okay with that? And is that where I'll be? And if not, then you may have to move someplace else. I mean, I think those, and I can use a few experiences. I mean, when I, when I was in working in London for the first time, I was the head of our financial planning analysis, and I, I had never, I, I came to understand how important understanding and working in Australia was in our company. And I just said, you know, I said, I'd really like to work in Australia. I went and talked to my boss about this, but a month later, it just so happened. A job opened in Australia, which was perfect for me. I ended up moving to Australia about three months later. Got that, you know, got that experience, which was very important. I had a very similar experience before that, the, my job before that, where I, I'd only been in the job for about a year. I talked to my boss. I said, "Listen, I don't want you to wonder if a job comes up. Is he interested in going and working in London?" I said, "I am. If an opportunity comes up in London, I'm interested in it." I know I've only been in my job for 14 months. I'm not looking for it today. I'm not kidding you. Within the month, he called me up and said, there's a job in London. Do you want to go? And I went and worked in London. And so I think it's very important that you do that. I had a very similar experience when I went from being a CFO to a CEO of one of our business operations, where I had somebody that mentored me and helped me. The other thing is from a leader. So as you become a leader, one of the key things is managing people, and it's one of the hardest things you'll do. It's easy when people are doing well, because it's easy to work with them, to praise them, to reward them when they're doing well. When they're not doing well, it's 
sucks. It's the hardest thing you'll have to do, but you have to do it. And so you, you, you have to pe treat people with respect, you have to treat them with dignity, but you have to work with them to try and turn them around. If they're not working out, what are the reasons? What can we do to help fix it? Sometimes that's successful, sometimes it's not. And when it's not successful, and I'm not trying to sound like an ogre, but when it's not successful, if you have people that are not carrying their load on your team, it will only drag you down and the rest of your team, and you can't accept it. And it's one of the hardest things you have to do as a leader. You don't want to do it. You don't want to face up to it. So, so as an employee, put yourself on the other side of that equation. If things aren't quite working out, quite often your leader won't tell you because it's not any fun. So that's why you, you, you sometimes as a person have to make sure you're keeping that dialogue open. And th when I, the more and more times that I've heard CEOs of companies talk, this, they come back to this point over and over again. They were too slow to make decisions on people that were not performing well. And it's no fun, and you always treat people with dignity and respect, and you try and help them to do better, but sometimes it just is not a good fit, and you need to move on for both people's sake. So that was, I was going to talk a little bit about more careers, but that was kind of a condensed. <laughs> well, actually, on that note, you uh, talked a lot about those resources and challenges you guys have as an industry. How do people fit into that? How do you develop people within the company, given the volatility in commodities and the long-term extended time between find and mine? Um, we're, we're realizing and we're starting to invest a lot more in our people systems. It's probably an area that we haven't done the greatest job in the past. Um, so we're develop, we're, we've been spending over the last six or seven years, but even more so over the last couple of years, a lot more on training, mentoring, coaching. Um, we, we're starting to really do a lot more on diversity, both gender and um, if I, national ge ge uh, diversity as well. And we've been working on gender diversity now with some emphasis for about um, five or six or seven years with some real concerted effort. And we're showing some progress. When you look at national diversity, uh, where we're going in the future, we don't have those people working in our com company. So if you think we, we're going to go develop stuff in, in the Congo or in Guinea, how many Ghanaians do we have working in our office? Very few. And particularly at levels that can engage with prime ministers, presidents, and that. Language skills. So we're very heavily, we speak, if I can say, American, Australian, and Canadian now, uh, and, and Brit, British, English, very heavy. We, we, we're starting to get more French because of the Alcan acquisition. Uh, we have very few, uh, if you look at the scheme of things, people that are from South America in our, in our company. And we've just made a decision that we're going to have to go out and hire 100 Indians and we're going to have to bring them into our operations and train them. And hopefully over time, um, you know, as we develop operations in India, we're doing the same thing with Mongolia. So we, we're just, we've, we've just gone out. We're doing scholarship programs, but we're hiring people out of university and bringing them to, into our operations and getting them trained. Because when, when we run an operation in Mongolia, we don't want it run by a bunch of white British 
or Americans, to be honest with you. We want it run by Mongolians, ultimately. Won't happen day one because they might not have the skills, but over time, we want Mongolians or Indians or Ghanaians to, to run those operations. But we're a little bit behind that. But we're starting, it, it, it's money, money and effort. On behalf of Stanford, uh, thank you for Thanks, Thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.